All right, well, this week um, we are going to wrap up completely Revelation 19, but I do, we need to kind of do a little bit of a review here um, to give you a perspective. One of the things that I tell people all the time is that you cannot fully understand Revelation without understanding the festivals. And I believe that is so true, even though I don't grasp all the details. I see the connections that are there. And I think you've been able to see that too as well. I'm just going to kind of put these together a little bit tonight as we close out Revelation 19. Um, just to keep the context of everything, I want you to kind of, we're going to just read through this quick, uh, at least through verse 13. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God, and I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, I'm not going to go over each of these. We've, we've touched on some of the things before, but I wanted you to see the context of that as we make a connection to Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Really all of the fall festivals are in there, but we're going to make some connections to uh, specifically Yom Kippur and a few others here tonight. But um, in Acts 27.9, it says, Now when much time was spent and when sailing was no dangerous because the fast... Something wrong there anyway. Um, basically, when it says the fast, I think, yeah, sailing was not dangerous, maybe. Anyway, because of the fast, when it says the fast there, that is speaking of Yom Kippur. That is what it is relating to. And it said it was now already past. Now dangerous. Now dangerous. There we go. That sounds better. Um, thank you. So... Paul is admonishing them. The point that I want you to see is that, first of all, they're still using these things. Paul was still keeping the festivals afterwards. But just notice the, the connection and the mentioning of it. Next we read here in Isaiah 1.18, it says, the, Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now, this whole idea of us being given white to wear, there's a festival where that takes place, or and that is the Day of Atonement, where the, the high priest would wear the kittle, the white robe that was for purity. All other times they would wear all this decked out, beautiful garb, but not on this day. This day, it was all white. And so, just uh, some connections to this that I'm pointing out. 
We read in Revelation 19.7, As bride has made herself ready, fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints, or you might even say holiness. Okay? Now, I believe that what is being fulfilled in part in Revelation with what we've been reading in the last few chapters is what the Bible calls this Day of Atonement, the fast, the time when the, the purity is being given, the white robes are being handed out, the bride has made herself ready. All of this language that is being used is really a time period of Day of Atonement. We think of Day of Atonement as judgment for the ungodly and you know harsh, but we have to realize that this is also atonement being made for us that's a good thing it isn't just judgment yes there's judgment for the ungodly but for us atonement has been made through yeshua and white robes are given us to wear that isn't just because hey you were such a good person because you weren't and aren't and never will be it is because of atonement that these white robes are being given and so it's easy for us to look at the Day of Atonement as Judgment Day. But don't lose the fact that on the opposite side, for us, this is redemption. This is the final piece of redemption. You cannot be redeemed without being atoned for. This is the punishment having been taken away. Now, just to kind of remind you as far as these festivals go. We have uh, the Feast of Trumpets first, which is Elul 1. I know Elul means nothing to you, but it's basically a month before our September or October, depending on, because again, the lunar calendar is different than our solar calendar. But a month before, a full month before Trumpet starts, um, you have these 30 days of repentance, it's called. It starts on Elul 1. It'll go through those 30 days. And then you have um, trumpets beginning on Tishri 1. And that lasts for the next 10 days. So from Elul 1 through the day of, or the time of uh, trumpets, you have a 40-day period. That's going to be, I think, significant when we look at some of the Old Testament events. Now, I, again, don't understand all the details, but I think that when the end times begin to unravel completely, I think you're going to understand this 40. I think there's a purpose for it. I don't know where. I'm just saying everything points to an end time fulfillment of this. And so I think it's important for you to recognize it or at least know this so that when things unfold, you can see it. Anyway, then we see uh, atonement is on Tishri 10 and then Sukkot starts on Tishri 15 through the 21st. <coughs> now, historically, Jewish tradition, and I think the Bible can support it, but it doesn't say it outright, but things do line up to where I think you can get biblical support for the fact that Mount Sinai, the law was given on Shavuot or Pentecost. 
And it's then at Pentecost that we see Moses coming down and 3,000 people are dying because of their rebellion against God. Years later, we see it is on Pentecost that 3,000 people are saved when the Holy Spirit is given. Now, don't lose, if you remember me talking about the Holy Spirit and the fire of the Old Testament. When the Ten Commandments were given, the Holy Spirit was there, and there were flames of fire. Literally, the Bible says there were flames of fire going out to the nations. Um, if you don't know, remember that, go back and look at some of the older messages that I've done on the tongues of fire. But the Bible talks about that. So, not only do we see when the law is being given, the fire, the Holy Spirit going out from Mount Sinai, we also see at Pentecost the same type of thing happening. Now, basically what you can see, and if you, you have your Bibles open, you can look at Exodus 19, and you can see that basically all the way from chapter 19 up to chapter 24, we see the laws are being given, and Moses is coming and going talking to God. And oftentimes when we look at the Old Testament, we see Moses goes up the mountain, he comes back, he drops the commandments, he goes up and he comes back, and that's it. But read carefully chapters 19 through 24. God is talking about these, these laws, and Moses hasn't even gone up the mountain yet. We see then in chapter 24, Moses' first ascent up Mount Sinai. And he is going to spend 40 days up there where God not only cut out of stone these rocks for the Ten Commandments, but with the finger of God wrote on the Ten Commandments. M Moses had absolutely no part in that. He just went up and received it. Don't forget as well that he didn't just come down with the Ten Commandments. He also came down with the blueprints of the tabernacle, a pattern and shadow of what is in heaven, it says in Hebrews, I think, chapter 8. See to it that you make it exactly according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, then we get to Exodus 32. Moses comes down the mountain, and we see that while he's up there, they can hear the roaring of people, and you know, he says it doesn't sound like war. It sounds like a celebration, like they're partying. And he comes down and he sees this golden calf where they decided, hey, we're going to make rules of our own, worship gods, you know, form and fashion them according to the way we want God to look. We'll call it God. We'll call it Yahweh. We'll worship Yahweh, but we're going to do it our way. Well, that did not please God. And God is ready to destroy the Israelites. Wipe them out. But if you look in Exodus 32, verse 30, specifically, you will see it is the very next day that Moses then goes to intercede for the Israelites. The very next day. And in Exodus 32, 31, it says, What a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not then blot me out of the book you have written. We've talked about this before, about what a remarkable thing that is for Moses to say, I will go to hell. I would rather go to hell than these people 
these enemies, these people who have not let me lead, who have nothing but complained and grumbled against me, I'll die for them. Again, a Christ figure. Well, Moses is willing to go and intercede for another 40 days. So we see in Exodus 34, the second ascent. According to Jewish tradition, it is believed to be on Yom Kippur when Moses returns, having made atonement for the Israelites. It would make sense because it's after that that we're going to see the tabernacle and all of these kind of things really uh, beginning. We're going to see that Moses goes up to make atonement. I don't think that there is an accident that we see Jesus going off into the wilderness for 40 days. Now, by the way, the second time Moses comes back down the mountain or he goes up the mountain, God says, you hewn out these stones. So Moses has to cut out the stones. God still writes the commandments, but, but Moses cuts out the stone this time. And there's something there as well. I've got some ideas I don't know, but that's a whole other message. So anyway, the question is, is could this correspond to the time period of Exodus 32, this Elul 1 to Tishri 10, which is this 40 days of repentance, that same time period that Moses is up on the mountain that first time? I don't know. But it's something to, to keep in mind, basically. So, some fascinating things about the Day of Atonement, and, and actually uh, this period of repentance as a whole in Yom Teruah, is this is a, believed when books are going to be opened for judgment. It's believed that Moses came down the mountain the second time, as I said, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and when Moses is basically a Christ figure, it makes sense that what Moses is doing is foreshadowing what Christ would do later on. If this is indeed Yom Kippur when Moses came down the mountain, he's bringing national atonement, as the Jews suggest he did, then it could easily be the second time Jesus is coming back down to bring national atonement. People always ask, what's the difference between Passover and the Day of Atonement? Well, Passover was a personal atoning sacrifice. Day of Atonement was a national atonement. In essence, the first time Jesus came, it is, in many ways, a personal thing. When he comes back, it's no longer personal, it's national. The body of Christ is being taken as a whole. So there's all kinds of things there, so much more than what I can even see right now. But I believe there's, there's a lot to connecting these uh, events together. Um, anyway, when Jesus comes the first time, what does he see? Metaphorically speaking, he sees the golden calf. His people going amok, celebrating, making gods of their own pleasing. 
redefining who he is. But when he comes a second time, it's going to be different. He came and he made atonement. He's gone. That atonement is still there. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. He's on the mercy seat. But when he comes back, it's all done. It's all over. And where is he going to take you? To the promised land. And that is exactly where Moses here is going to take these people. To the promised land. Now, because of their disobedience, they're going to say, mm, sorry, you know, 40 years of desert wandering. But the pattern, the plan, was to go into the promised land. And so there's some picture here that is important. You know, clearly, we see that Jesus is our atonement sacrifice. Some people say, well, that's what his cross was. No, he was the Passover lamb. But it did make atonement. So there is a connection to both of them. For example, here in Romans 3.25, God presented him, Yeshua, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Or Hebrews 9.11, Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Not with the blood of goats and calves, which is on the day of atonement, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption. See, it doesn't say not with the blood of lambs, connecting it to Passover here. It's connecting it to atonement. He is both the Passover sacrifice and atonement. But you see, he couldn't come on the Day of Atonement because I think that that's a picture of his second coming. The work has already been done. But he still has to go away and come back. We know the blood is the price of atonement. It's the, the price of the new covenant. And there's all kinds of verses here that you can look at. It gives eternal life. It brings redemption. It cleanses. It allows us to overcome. The blood is the key. We read here in Hebrews 10... Verses 4 through 6, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. His body was going to be that sacrifice that would atone for us. Atonement literally means to cover the blood of the animals could only cover our sins, but the better blood of Yeshua was what takes them all away, cleanses us, doesn't just cover. It's not Febreze? Febreze. Yeah, I, I couldn't find that word. Febreze, you know, it doesn't cover up the odor. This is going to take it away. It cleanses you. You can't be holy by covering things up. You can only be holy by being cleansed. Now the high priest, when he would go in on the Day of Atonement, he would wear on his turban something that said, Holy to the Lord. Now, he has made us priests, the scriptures tell us, 
And in essence, that's what we are. When God, you know, we talk about the, the mark of the beast and how we talked about that God's word is to be bound, you know, on your, a symbol on your hand and to be bound on your forehead or bound on your arms and written on your forehead. That the Jews still wear these phylacteries with God's word in it. And it's all because it's supposed to be God's word, his law, in your minds. And see, we don't wear the physical, we wear the spiritual of God's law being written in our hearts and in our minds as the new covenant promised it would. Hebrews 8, Jeremiah 31. And so we are now holy, like those priests going in on the most holy day to make atonement, we wear, when we have the word of God in our hearts and minds, we wear holy to the Lord on our foreheads. Um, we know, I'm not going to go over all the details, but you remember there were two goats offered on the Day of Atonement. We've talked about that many times. It'll kind of play in maybe later. The Jews have recorded that there were four ominous events that took place um, at the t about 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem, which is when Yeshua was there. And they said the first was the miracle of the red cloth that you would put on those goats. It would miraculously turn white. Well, it didn't do that after Christ was there. The second was the lot that was cast for the, the scapegoat, you know. It came up in the left hand. It always came up in the right hand before that, but now all of a sudden it was coming up in the left hand. A third one was the, the westernmost light of the temple menorah would not stay lit. And remember, the menorah was supposed to be lit 24-7, and it kept going out. And the fourth is the temple doors, which were so large that one person couldn't open them by themselves, kept opening up on their own at night. These are four things that the Talmud records historically took place 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. It's almost as if God was trying to tell them something, right? This temple is not going to last. That he has prepared a body instead. That's you. A new temple for him to live in. That light isn't going to burn. This light is going to burn. So, the rabbis, of course, as I've mentioned before, say that these miracles were taking place and that, you know, this goods, you know, the miracle of the red turning to white, these were good things. They stopped. Why? Because too many people followed a false messiah. Ironically, if we use the verse in Zechariah as a reason for the, the doors being opened, this is how they justify that happening. It says this in Zechariah 11.1, 1, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. So they use that as a justification for, hey, so many people followed this false Messiah, the doors were opening to allow judgment to come in, you might say. So rather than seeing the complete truth, they reason, you know, that this is, a prediction of the Roman army coming. So they missed the truth. 
Um, the point being is when that temple was gone, you couldn't have Day of Atonement anymore. And it is remarkable to me, I know I've told most of you this story before, but just in case you, you weren't here to hear it. When we go to Jerusalem, sometimes we'll, we'll go to the Temple Institute. And it's at the Temple Institute where the Jews have built all of the, the artifacts. They've got the Ark of the Covenant uh, that's somewhat ready, but it's not the Ark of the Covenant. They've got the, the show, table of showbread. They've got... The menorah, you can even go see the menorah standing outside. It's solid gold. I mean, it's got to be worth millions and millions of dollars alone. they got all these things that are there ready. They have the stones ready, labeled, so that as soon as they can get that temple mount back, within days they'd have the whole temple up and ready to go because everything's ready. They've got the priestly garments and everything. But guys, it's been 2,000 years. 2,000 years without atonement being made. What do you do with that? And I asked one of the ladies at the Temple Institute in front of the group, I said, so, you know, these sacrifices is how you receive forgiveness. Without the temple, how are you receiving forgiveness? And the answer is what I knew she was going to give me from a rabbi that was, I think, around 120 A.D. or 132 A.D. And the answer is this, basically by giving money to the poor, alms, and good works, ultimately. Prayers, and giving money away, and serving. Modern day Judaism has thrown away the Day of Atonement. Because they have no temple to celebrate it in, so what is it? We do it. Our works, our things, that's what brings atonement. How sad. But what the book of Revelation is saying is no, Jesus, and, and the New Testament here as well, in other places, Yeshua, Jesus, is that atonement. And there is no need for it again. Just like those priests year after year had to go in and make that sacrifice, Jesus did it once for all, Hebrews says. And I think that's why God says there is no temple and there's not going to be another one that you, you know, for that type of thing again. Because I'm it. Revelation, what we've seen is the culmination of that. It is him coming back, having made atonement to take us to the promised land. That's what we have seen. Psalm 49, verses 6 through 8 says, They that trust in the wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to, to give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious and it ceases forever. You see, I don't care how, many, how much money you give, how good you are, you can never cover or get rid of your sins. Be good enough for atonement. 1 Samuel 2.25, If a man sins against another man, God may mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Only Yeshua can take away. And that's what Moses did. Moses, as a picture of Christ, he was the only one that could make atonement because God was going to wipe him out. 
God would wipe us out if it wasn't for Yeshua, our mediator. All we're doing now is waiting for Him to come down the mountain again. We don't want to be like those Israelites who get tired of waiting and say, oh, you know, He's, he's taking so long. Let us find some peace and comfort for our souls in some other way. Don't let your, your eyes get taken off of Yeshua. We read here in Leviticus 25, Yom Kippur, then have the trumpet sound everywhere on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each one of you is to return to his family property and to each his own clan. You get your original property back. This is why what we're going to see in Revelation, when you go and the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven, you see the tribes and the 12 gates. You're going to go through one of those gates. Why? Because you are going to be assigned your inheritance. It goes back to you on the year of Jubilee. It's a, to proclaim liberty. So this proclaiming liberty or freedom for every slave, returning the property to its original owner, and by the way, that's also what we see is God is the original owner, but then he's dishing it out. That's why we saw, I think it was in, uh, when the Lord comes and he puts his foot on Mount Olives and on the, you know, or on the sea and on the earth. He's coming back to claim ownership because it is a year of freedom, liberty, and a time for the land to be returned to its original owner. That's why God is coming back at this time. That's why these rules were given to point to that. Our, our deliverer is coming back. It may seem like God has lost this place and, and that the kingdoms all belong to Satan and Satan's, you know, one. But he hasn't. There's a year of liberty that we're waiting for. And this is what's supposed to happen on the Day of Atonement. Sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty. On the Day of Atonement, the 50th year. So, when he returns, he's going to set his children free, and the land that he gave to Abraham is going to be theirs forever and ever, and he's going to judge in favor of us, his people. So, Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This is, uh, well, I'll keep reading. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So you can see atonement connected to this, can't you? This is the very verse that Yeshua reads in the synagogue in Luke 4. And this is what's amazing. Jesus reads this, but he stops short of finishing it. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recover the sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened to him, and he began by saying to them, Today, 
this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know how we talk about Passover? At Passover, we go through that and I say it's not over. Everybody thinks, oh, Passover, that Jesus did that, it's all done. No, remember there was a fourth cup. It isn't finished yet. The Day of Atonement is the same way. Jesus, when he died on that cross, was indeed our atonement sacrifice. He even says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled. But he didn't read all of it. Notice he left out in the day of vengeance of our God. You see, he, he wasn't coming to judge yet. That's in the book of Revelation. And yes, we do have freedom because of Yeshua today. You don't have to wait for the Lord to come back to experience freedom, to experience joy in this life, to experience victory. You have it today. But I think that we have this idea that we're supposed to, like when revelation comes, then we're going to be able to, huh. Yes, I get it. There is some truth to that. But don't forget the truth that we have that now. We have victory now. Claim the year of redemption already. Atonement has been made. Why wouldn't we celebrate redemption? Why wouldn't we be excited about that? And when bad things happen, it's like, hey, at least I'm saved. I lost an arm, but I'm saved. You know? We need to remember that and keep that in focus. Now, a couple of neat things about that. Um, again, we've talked about his second coming probably at the time of atonement. It's believed by Messianic Jews that Jesus read this verse on the Day of Atonement. Again, I think there's good support. We can't prove it. But he's proclaiming the year of liberty, the year of favor, the the uh, jubilee year, it seems. Okay? Now, it's this festival, the Day of Atonement, that God would open and close the books of judgment, right? What does the, the scripture say? Not only when he pronounces that this is the year of favor, which seems to be, and if it was true, this is the day of atonement, it says that he rolled up the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant. He, he basically opened up the books and he closed the books. A picture of what goes on on the day of atonement. Now, the other interesting thing is, what is the result of Jesus saying this? In Luke 4, verse 28, shortly after this, it says, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off or down the cliff. They were about to throw Yeshua off a cliff. Let me make that a little bit more clear. They were about to throw our scapegoat off of a cliff. What did they do on the Day of Atonement? They would take the two goats, the one to be sacrificed, the other one taken out into the wilderness to be going off of a cliff, they say. And so now, possibly on the Day of Atonement, Yeshua is pronouncing the year of favor. 
end, opens and closes the books, and then is taken out to the out to the cliffs. Okay, obviously they weren't successful, but uh, an interesting pattern that is there. Leviticus 16, priests take a censer full of burning coals from the altar and they put incense on the fire. The smoke then conceals the atonement cover. The bull's blood is sprinkled on the atonement cover seven different times. They take the goat blood behind the curtain and they do the same thing with the bull's blood basically and pour it out at the base of the altar. No one can enter the tent of meeting until the time that uh, Aaron goes in to make atonement until he comes out. So that's what we see in Leviticus 16, 12 through 15. Those series of events on the Day of Atonement. And again, he's doing this with holy to the Lord written on his forehead. Let's look at Revelation 8, 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. That's right out of what happens in Leviticus 16. Threw it to the earth, the base. They pour the blood out at the base of the altar. There were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. In Revelation 14, 18, it says, And another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire. It seems like it's the same guy. And he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle. What I want you to see is the connection here in Revelation 8 into Revelation 14. It seems to be the same thing being talked about. Here's this angel coming, filling it with fire from the altar. And then in chapter 14, you see this angel who's in charge of the fire. So just that connection. In Revelation 8, verse 4, smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. What we saw in Leviticus 16 is there was smoke that basically covered the altar, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and nobody could go in or out until all of that had happened. Basically, the smoke had cleared. In Revelation 15, 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Seven plagues? How many times were you supposed to throw blood, you know, sprinkle blood? Seven times. There are seven plagues that are poured out from the altar on the earth of judgment. What is this blood for? It was judgment. It was death. It was Jesus taking atonement, taking our judgment for us. But you see, in the end times, what we're seeing in Revelation, Jesus has made atonement, but for those who have not accepted his sacrifice, it's being poured out seven times. I'm telling you, the book of Revelation are these fall festivals. And we see, again, I may not have a perfect picture of it all, but we know that Hebrews says that what this tabernacle or temple was on earth was a shadow and pattern of what is in heaven. So what was going on on earth in the temple is going to be a picture of what's going on in heaven. 
This is why for the church to say, oh, we don't need to understand these festivals. We don't need to understand those sacrifices. And when we get to Leviticus and Exodus and all of these things, when we're reading through all these sacrifices, if you're just looking at it from the physical perspective of, okay, well, I needed to do this first and then that and then this and that, okay, you're going to miss it. Somehow those sacrifices are going to fit into end times, into Christ, Yeshua, somehow. And the more you study them, the more you're going to see bits and pieces of that in there. And we, we see the book of Hebrews making connections to it all the time. But without us understanding it, you cannot fully understand the book of Revelation. So, uh, notice again here on this last one, chapter 8, verse 4, and chapter 15, verse 8, the, the smoke of the incense and the prayers and the smoke filling the temple. There's a connection between chapter 8 and chapter 15. Revelation here as well in chapter 15, or uh, this is chapter 8 first. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels, who had the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. So just reading that, you can kind of see Leviticus in there. It goes on here in chapter 11. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging. Might say the Day of Atonement, for judging the dead, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of his Covenant. The temple in heaven is a pattern of the temple on earth. And so, the Ark of His Covenant. What is that Ark of the Covenant? We can picture it just as a physical thing. Oh, you know, it had the cherub here, and it was covered in gold. It was solid gold, and it housed the, the law, you know, the Ten Commandments, and it had Aaron's staff that had budded, and it also had a gold jar full of manna. Yeah, that's the physical. But you need to remember that the Ark of the Covenant is where the atonement blood was poured out onto. That's the spiritual truth of it. The spiritual truth of it is this is the mercy seat of God, the very throne room of God. And what is inside of it? The Ten Commandments, the Father. Aaron's staff that had budded the Holy Spirit. The, the, the manna, which is the Jesus... The Bible says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. You see the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit all within on that throne of God. So, in Revelation 15, 8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven uh, angels were fulfilled. Just as I said, I just wanted you to see these things together. These are, are things that were going on on the fall festivals. 
Revelation 19, for true and righteous are his judgments. He has judged the great whore. He is clothed, was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword to smite the nations. So, again, among you know the judging of Revelation, there's incense being burned, the smoke filling the temple. Fires taken from the altar, the seven angels are being used, the wicked are punished, the righteous are being rewarded. The, the temple and access to the most holy place is opened up. No man's allowed to go in until the, the judgment is over. They're clothed in white. And Christ's robe is dipped in blood, just like the high priest's robe. All of these being done on that festival. All of them being seen in the book of Revelation. I don't think we can just narrow it down, just boom, here's your verse in Revelation. But you take it as a whole of what we're seeing, it really comes together, at least it does for me. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 13 and following, We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it, while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. I think there is a big prophetic significance to this. It was on Yom Kippur that the high priest went in to see God face to face. That was the only day he went into the most holy place, to the altar, the throne room of God. The smoke was filled up there to basically shield and protect him from seeing the full radiance of God. Moses goes up on the mountain. He sees God face to face. He comes back. His face is glowing. He's radiant. Is it possible as well, then, that this is the day that the nation of Israel is going to corporately realize that Yeshua was their Messiah. Because when Moses came down the mountain with his face shining, what did he have to do? Cover it up. Why? They couldn't look at it. They weren't ready for it. The people were rebellious when Moses came down the mountain. What they needed was the law, not the glory. They weren't ready for the grace of God that Moses had experienced. It's no different from us today. He says, don't cast your you know, pearls before swine. The natural man cannot understand the spiritual things of God. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. We don't give the gospel to the unrepentant. Well, I know some people do. But we're not supposed to. We're supposed to give them the law. Repent, or you shall perish. Once they get the law, once they receive the law, then you get to remove the veil, and you get to see the glory of God. The glory of the law, by the way. 
I find it interesting as well that when the world reads this, I have heard many times this verse being used, the law is a bad thing. Even to this day, it says, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. And they leave that. See, when you're giving the law and you're uplifting the law today, you're putting a veil on. Okay, Take off the veil so you can see the glory. That's the typical interpretation. Wrong. Let's take it in context. What does this go on to say? Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. When the law is read to people in the church today, do you know what remains on their hearts? A veil. They don't like it. They don't like the law of God. Why? Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Is the law taken away? No. The veil covering the glory is taken away. The law was never taken away. You see, people look at that as the law being taken. But what it's saying is that I find it so funny, and I don't know how much I can say here right now, but bottom line, recently there was a, a guy who... Let me just put it this way. You know how pastors sometimes they get so hung up on their little pet doctrines. I've been in churches or I'll go out and speak in just a phrase that I use. I remember one time I said, God wants more than just your salvation. Okay, He, he wants your heart. You know, and this guy came up afterwards and just said, you know, that's, that's really not... A, a right doctrinal thing to say that God wants more than your salvation doesn't just want you to be saved and he, he had his explanation my point being is this I have seen so many nitpicky people over little doctrinal kind of odd things even colors of carpet or whether you should have a cross on the wall or you don't have a cross on the wall or you know your altar has a cross and you don't have a I mean all these little things that tick people off do you know when I was the most legalistic in my life? When I was in a church that taught nothing but the gospel. I was by far the most legalistic, dogmatic, uh, just everything I read was, you know, through a filter of church doctrine, not Bible, church doctrine. And I was... I'd listen to a sermon here and there, and every little piece that just, that's, you know, nope, that, that, that was not a good way to put it, you know, blah, 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 whatever. Recently, I've experienced that. Same type of thing, and I thought, isn't it funny that I'm the one, because I love the law, am the one that is legalistic? And I am by far the less legalistic person that I know. Why? Because in Christ, the veil of the law was removed. And now the glory of the law shines in my life. It's not because of a legalistic do and don't and check that one off. It is the glory of the law. But you need to know Christ 
to have that. If you have the law without Christ, there is a veil. You can't handle the glory. And you're going to be following a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts. I have found freedom in Christ and love the law. Absolutely love and adore it. Because the law is Jesus. Yeah. I said it too. So. So you saying John was right? <laughs> yes. You see, again, the law is the word of God. The word of God is Jesus. Jesus is the law. It's, it's that simple. But you have to understand it through Christ. Not as a list of do's and don'ts. But where is Jesus in it? Just like looking at this tabernacle, this temple, you can see it as just the physical, or you can see Jesus and all the good things that it points to with him. You don't get rid of it. I don't want to get rid of the temple or the tabernacle and all of its teachings because that's a shadow of what's to come, which is why Revelation has so many of these connections to it. i got to keep going. Exodus or Ezekiel 20, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I will rule over you with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm with outpoured wrath. I'll bring you from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with outpoured wrath. I will bring you into the desert of the nations and there face to face. I will execute judgment upon you. In Leviticus 16.2, Moses was to tell Aaron not to enter the most holy place at any time of year except for on the Day of Atonement or else he would die. In Ezekiel, there's this prophecy of meeting face to face, and yet that's the only time you're supposed to do it is on the Day of Atonement. Is that what this is being talked about? It almost seems like it is, but this is a reference which is future, to the Day of Atonement. Meeting face to face and executing judgment upon them. That's what we've been reading about in Revelation. Okay, There is no question that someday the Lord's going to bring scattered Israel back home. So that, as Scripture said, He's going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. That's going to happen. And I think it's going to happen on the Day of Atonement when there's going to be a spirit of grace and supplication, when the veil is going to be removed and they're going to recognize Yeshua, the one that they have pierced, who was their sacrifice of atonement, personally and nationally. Um, again, just how Revelation is a culmination of all these prophecies. Just look at this. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, Lower Egypt, Upper Egypt, and all these places. He's going to raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Okay. You're supposed to be coming 
to Jerusalem for this time. Now we see, you know, tabernacles. Well, tabernacles is all connected to this time period. People would come and stick around. There's a gathering of people to come to Jerusalem. We talked about that. It seems to be what's going on. A gathering of people to Zion in Revelation. Jeremiah 30. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I'll break the yoke off their necks, tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So don't fear, O Jacob, my servant. Don't be dismayed, O Israel. I will surely save you out of a distant place, your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security, and no one will make him afraid. So we're just reading in the Old Testament here, but can you see how these are supposed to be and intended, I believe, to be plugged into the book of Revelation, to be plugged into what's going on on a day of atonement, where you'll no longer be afraid, but you're going to be at peace, that you're proclaiming a year of freedom and liberty, Ezekiel 37, I'm just going to hit the highlights. I'll gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. Make them one nation. There will be one king over them. Never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images. By the way, this two kingdoms never be divided. We think, oh, Israel and Judah. Well, I think that there is truth to that, but remember that was basically Ephraim and the basically the northern tribes, which became known as Ephraim, and the southern tribes, which became known as Judah, and Ephraim became Gentiles. And so when we're talking about never again being two people, that means Jews and Gentiles coming back. Again, we've talked about that before, we'll talk about it again, but you know, you read in Genesis 49, the, the blessing of Ephraim would be, you will become a multitude of nations, literally a multitude of goyim, it says in Hebrew, a multitude of Gentiles. And that's exactly what happened to Ephraim. They became Gentiles. It goes on, they will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave them. Wait a minute, I thought we're done with the law, but yet this is prophetic of end times. You're being brought back. You're being united. And when you do, you're going to follow God's laws and you're going to be careful to keep his decrees. That's what it says. Sounds to me like a veil's been removed. He says, I'm going to put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. You can say, well, yeah, he's right now. He's living in you. Yep. But is that the final fulfillment of it? No, that's just a shadow of what it's going to be like. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. Hosea 3, 4 and 5. The Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Sounds like we've been there for a while. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord into his blessings in the last days. It said here multiple times bringing back David. Do you, do you feel that's like a literal David? Like a literal David? I don't know. I've wondered that myself. Obviously, David's a picture of Christ, 
and Jesus is the son of David, he's on the throne of David, all of these pictures. It could be Christ, but there are pictures that tend to make me wonder if King David won't also be kind of established, just like the it seems that the um, the disciples are. Jesus said, you will sit on thrones judging. And so why would not David also be able to? Yeah. So, you know, all of these verses, Jeremiah restoring them to their land and so on, these are all things that seem to be revelation. But yet we read them and we don't think about revelation. And I'm hoping, my goal in this was to connect and say, wow, what we've been reading in Revelation are all these great promises that when you're, re when you're reading the Old Testament, oh, that sounds great, great. And then for some reason we get to the book of Revelation, it's oh, 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 doom, gloom. What? You're missing something then, aren't you? This is atonement. That's a good thing. These are promises being fulfilled. Revelation is is the culmination of all of these things that we are reading about. The gathering of nations in, in Ezekiel 20. O house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Go serve your idols, every one of you, but afterward well, you will surely listen to me and no longer profane my holy name with your gifts and idols. For on my holy mountain, the high mountain of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord, there in the land the entire house of Israel will serve me. There I will accept them. There I will require your offerings and your choice gifts. Whoa, what? There I will require your offerings and your choice gifts along with your holy sacrifices. I will accept you as fragrant incense when I bring you out from the nations and gather you from the countries where you have been scattered. Okay, we've talked, touched on that before. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but Zechariah and Ezekiel and other places talk about these sacrifices being made. Not sin offerings. Jesus is that. But I think just like in the Garden of Eden, Cain and Abel, Noah gets off the ark, there was no Leviticus. But what are they doing? Making sacrifices, offerings. Okay, thank offerings. Whatever. I, I don't understand it all. All I know is not every offering is for forgiveness of sins. Worship, yeah. Romans 11. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brother, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until. So many people, oh, Jesus is done with the Jews. No, he's not. Only until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And it goes on. Go look at that. Romans 11, 25 and 26. Hosea 5 and 6 uh, you know, talking about Jesus going away. We've talked about this before, so I won't go into it. And then in their misery, they're going to seek God. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, restore us that we may live in his presence. We talked about that before, just to remind you. So in essence, what we're seeing here, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles, the fall festivals. This is revelation. Okay, trumpets, the Lord's return. When? At the seventh trumpet. We see in Revelation chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4, all talk about these kind of things. At the last trumpet, what happens at the seventh trumpet in Revelation? The kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our God, and the time to reward his saints has come. Then the day of atonement, judgment day, the seven times, dipping and pouring out the blood, 
Seven plagues bringing judgment. But we who have been atoned for are at rest with him, given white robes to wear, getting prepared for the wedding banquet of the Lamb. And then tabernacles is, well, now I will live with you. Just like what we read here in Hosea, after two days he will revive us, on the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence. That is tabernacles. After atonement is made. So, in closing out here, Revelation 14, or 19, verse 14. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Okay, you have been atoned for, you've been given white robes, and now you follow as he goes to judge. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword with which to strike, or uh, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So, again, we see Hebrews 4, Jesus, the Word of God, you know, sharper than a double-edged sword, all of those connections as well. Um, earlier in chapter 3 of Revelation, verse 4, we say we, the promise, we will walk with him, dressed in white, for they are worthy, those overcomers. Um, as far as here talking about striking the nations and that he has a, a rod of iron, he has an iron scepter, you might say. Isaiah talks about striking the earth with the rod of his mouth. In 2 Thessalonians, it says that the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Or Isaiah 31, Assyria will fall by the sword that is not of man, a sword not of mortals will devour them. All showing Christ coming back to rule with an iron scepter. When? Atonement. Okay, um, Revelation 12, 5. This was all part of that prophecy. She gave birth to a son, a male who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God into his throne. Psalm 2, 9 talks about ruling them with an iron scepter, dashing them to pieces like pottery. So, again, these are all pictures of judgment and, and atonement. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone, to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. When we come back, this is Jude 14 and 15, quoting Enoch, we're coming with him in white robes, those white robes, atonement, the righteousness that God gives us, not that we earned. Um, I'm not going to read this, but Zechariah 14. Go read Zechariah 14. Okay, How he goes out and fights against those nations in the day of battle, and that all the holy ones are with him, and that he is king over the whole earth. Guys, I'll tell you what, you may not think you're a warrior now, you're going to be. You're riding with him. Um, I'm going to skip that. Verse 16, And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. First Timothy 6 tells us that 
you know, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal. There's no question who this is. We're riding with Jesus. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Sounds an awful lot like Matthew 24. Wherever the carcass is, there the vultures will gather. Okay, Or Jeremiah 12, 9 as well. When atonement takes place, we're the white robes, but the ungodly, there is no atonement. Because they thought they could do it on their own. Ezekiel talks about this, uh, at my table you will eat your fill of horses and riders, calling these these uh, vultures and basically carry-on birds. And uh, that's what we see and are about to see in Revelation happening as well. Jeremiah 46, The day belongs to the Lord, the Lord Almighty, a day of vengeance, a vengeance of his foes. The sword will devour till it is satisfied, till it's quenched its thirst with blood. Can you imagine a sword being satisfied? There's a day it will be when full judgment is poured out. So, um, verse 19 says, I saw a beast, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So what we're doing is we're getting prepped now to see this great Armageddon battle here in chapter 20. But notice that Who's in charge? The beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together. Remember we saw the dragon in chapter 12 and chapter 13. The dragon, the beast out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. Satan, an antichrist and an anti-Holy Spirit, a false prophet. Watch what happens here in verse 20. Last slide. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet. In other words, the Antichrist and the Anti-Holy Spirit are going to be captured in this Armageddon battle. Now, we often hear about the Armageddon battle. There's two of them. You're seeing the first one here, and you're going to see the next one after chapter 20. But here is the first one. The beast is captured with him, the false prophet, who works signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And remember, the beast is the one that also kills the two witnesses. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. So all these verses that I went through quickly about the birds coming and whatnot, here's exactly what you see happening. The point that I want you to see is this. When this comes, after the Day of Atonement takes place, the beast and the false prophet will be cast into hell, but not Satan. Satan is going to remain for a little bit. But for now, as you're going to see next week, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. But when the thousand years are over, he will be released 
and then he will be cast in to the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. So these two, there is a thousand years between this event and Satan being cast there. Now I'm going to be upright right now. I don't get a lot of this. I'm just telling you this is what Scripture is saying. We will dive in a little deeper as we continue. But you need to see this is going on. Now Daniel 7.11 prophesied this. I continued to watch because of the boastful words that the horn was speaking. That horn is the Antichrist. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. That is Revelation 19, verse 20. That is when it will be fulfilled, on the Day of Atonement. Okay? Now remember, the Day of Atonement is on the 10th of the month, and there's five days. Then the 15th through the 21st, that seven-day period, is the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. I don't know if this tabernacles is a picture of that thousand years. I don't know if that it's maybe in that five-day period of the Day of Atonement, if there's a symbol or picture of that there. I don't know, but it's something to think about. But anyway, um, the millennial reign is about to take place, and this is just a vital verse to understand for our chronological order of the book of Revelation. So... Like I said, we will talk about that more, but I do want to just close with this little thing. If you are a preterist, or if you are an amillennial, amillennial person, both of them basically say, the preterist says that Revelation was pretty well fulfilled in 70 AD. We are now in the millennial reign. An amillennial says there is no millennium. We are in the millennial reign now. The thousand-year period is just symbolic of the church age. If we are in the millennium right now, I do not understand this at all. Because these two are cast into the fire, then there's a thousand years, then Satan is released, and Satan is bound during that thousand years. How does that fit if you are a predest or a millennium? That's a problem. Okay, so for now, I don't believe that the beast and the false prophet are in. I don't think they've been revealed yet. As a matter of fact, the scriptures would tell you that until he who you know, uh, is holding them back is removed, are they going to be revealed? But there's a day coming in the future in Revelation where this will happen. And I look forward to that as well. So when you do see the world falling apart, and no, that's part of the plan. Remember, Haman had to, had to build his own gallows. It had to look pretty bleak before he could be hung on it. Let me tell you, the world right now is crazy, and God is doing it. God is allowing it, I should say, because they're building their own gallows. Okay? As... Paul Washer once said, why do the ungodly get to prosper? For the same reason, a farmer fattens the pig for the slaughter. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word.
in the encouragement that we get from it, knowing that you are returning and that you have made atonement for us. Lord, you have pronounced a year of freedom, and we know that there's more to come. We know that there's a final fulfillment, but in the meantime, Lord, let us find joy and just absolute jubilation because we have been freed, that the devil has no power over us, that this body means nothing because we need not fear the one who can destroy this body, but we should fear the one who can destroy both body and, and soul and spirit in hell. That's you, Lord. Give us a healthy fear of you that we might give you glory, honor, praise, thanks, and all of our worship. In the name of Yeshua, we praise. Amen.